Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. All right, friends. Today we've got um, the second uh, conversation I did with old N.T. Wright. Uh, the first one was about a year ago, and uh, this is a new one. So uh, before we get to that, let me tell you about two things. First of all, let me tell you about 1128 Ministries. Now, if you're looking for a place that is a safe place to seek God, a place to help prevent burnout for ministers, a place that gives hope for those who care for others, and renewal for ministers, 1128 Ministries is the place to go because they care about the spiritual life of ministers. Now, they provide services such as individual and group spiritual direction. If you listen to the podcast, we've had a lot of people talk about the importance of spiritual direction. And they provide that. Uh, They also provide sabbatical journeys, mentoring for young ministers, and staff spiritual formation. Uh, Now, next week on the Mailbag Podcast, we're going to have Reese Higgins come on for just a few minutes and tell us a little bit about what they're up to, along with something big they've got going on on the 28th of this month and a way for you uh, to help out with what they're doing. So um, look for them, 1128 Ministries. And yeah, now... Second thing, uh, on this podcast, we talk about uh, what is called the new perspective on Paul. And I don't think we ever really lay the groundwork for that on the conversation. So I want to just give you a brief uh, definition of what that is uh, for those of you who care to know. Uh, In, I think it was 1977, a uh, theologian named Saunders, Sanders, Sanders, let's go with Sanders, uh, wrote a book that um, uh, articulated a very popular view uh, in a fresh way that really created a lot of headway in which um, Sanders tried to argue what a lot of people have since said, this is the foundation of the new perspective on Paul. And the basic idea is when Luther led the Protestant Reformation, the 1500s, the big issue was the legalism of the Catholic Church. And a lot of people have since read that into Paul's understanding on the Jewish religion to think that it was also legalistic like the Catholic Church in the 1500s. What Sanders says is, no, that was the issue for Luther, and he read Paul that way, but that's not how a first century Jew felt about Judaism. They didn't see it as a religion of legalism at all. So the new perspective is saying that Old Testament is not legalism, New Testament love. That is more a Reformation idea that we've read into the text. So that's new perspective on Paul, kind of a 101 on that. And uh, just wanted you to know that. I also want you to know there's a little break in the conversation, but yeah, that's no big deal. It's Tom Wright. If he needs to stop, he can stop because... He's my hero. So, here it is. All right, friends, welcome back to the show. Today, we're excited to have returning to the show the bishop, Dr. N.T. Wright. How are you, sir? I'm good, thanks. I'm I'm still a bishop, but I'm not a practicing one anymore, if that makes sense. I know, but I feel like I still need to call you bishop because it's just (laughs) a great title. Now, I, there is a serious question I've got to ask you. I've got, I had a, a friend on last week, an author from Canada, and she was wondering why in the States your books title you as N.T. Wright, but in the U.K. they call you Tom. Oh, um, actually, the UK, type, the U.K. names shift according to whether it's an academic book or whether the publishers think of it more as a sort of a, a popular-level book. Oh, okay. so my, in, in the U.K., my academic books all have N.T. Wright on... But the more popular level ones have Tom Wright, 
Um, obviously, my second name is Thomas, usually abbreviated to Tom. That's what I've been known as all my life. Um, and I think early on, when I started publishing popular books as well as scholarly ones, somebody in the publishers took that decision, and I said, yeah, okay, no problem. <laughs> but the Americans have tended to go with, um, with the NT all through. Well... I like the NT, and maybe I'm just American, and maybe that's why. I don't know. Now, there's another, there's another question. I know you're in Scotland, and it's the end of the day, but I'm over in Texas. It's the beginning of the day still. Um, but it is still Friday the 13th where you are. And it is still Friday the 13th where I am, In yes. all of your historical research, have you concluded that Friday the 13th actually is lucky or is an unlucky day? <laughs> I have never seen any evidence one way or another, and nor does it, I confess, worry me at all. I, I think if I happen to see, or somebody says the phrase, Friday the 13th, then there is a slight frisson about it, but I've never noticed anything. Now, having said that, I'll probably find that the roof falls in tonight or something. <laughs> um, hopefully that's not going to happen. Because you are having quite a storm over there in Scotland. Today. <laughs> we are, yeah. Um, there's a... Uh, I'm not sure if it's a hurricane, but it's certainly a very fierce storm. It's worse on the West Coast because it's coming in off the Atlantic Ocean. And uh, we here in St. Andrew's area are on the East Coast, but it's still pretty fierce. <coughs> Excuse me. When I was driving back from work earlier today, um, it was, there was a lot of water on the roads and uh, a lot of splash and wind about. So, and it's colder than it was as well. But that's, you know, it's mid-November. Fair enough. Yeah, that's what weather's always like over there, isn't it? <laughs> Well, actually, on the east side of Scotland, especially where we are in this Andrews area, we have our own microclimate. It's much better than many other parts of Scotland, but that's just the luck of the draw, I guess. Yeah, I guess so. But needless to say, because of the storm, you're not playing any golf today. Sadly, no. Um, and it's too dark anyway. I mean, the, the, uh, it's now, um, as I'm speaking to you, it's 10 to 5, and the sun went down half an hour ago. Oh. Not that you could see it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's outstanding. Okay, now there, you, you've got a new book out. It's titled Paul and His Recent Interpreters. Correct. And you start off and you say that the book is, is, um, is an attempt to try to stand together all of the kind of present thought on Paul. And the comparison you make is uh, of a stockbroker at Starbucks standing next to a rapper talking. <laughs> now, yeah, yeah. Just for point of clarification, when you say rapper, in Texas, I think of a hip-hop artist, a musician. Yeah. Is that what you were thinking of? That's exactly what I was thinking of. <laughs> I, I was trying to imagine two people who were culturally as unlike as they might be. And uh, so, yeah. Yeah. That's, the, the point is, the point is but they can, they can overlap in the same space. They can both be buying coffee next to each that's other. That's true. Um, and even if they live in very different worlds. That's very true. Now, just a, for a point of reference, do you know any rappers? Do you listen to any rap music that would help? Actually, no, I'm afraid I don't. Mm. Uh, I know about it because they mention it on the radio or in the <laughs> press. But um, I, I love music, but I love classical music and jazz and um, and uh, all the stuff from the 60s when I was a lad, you know, the sort of um, um, Bob Dylan and everything points west from yeah. there. Um, so I'm quite eclectic in my musical taste, but I'm afraid it hasn't got down to or up or down or across to rap yet. <laughs> okay, well maybe maybe the next book you'll do some research on rap, and if you do, I would love I would love to hear about that. Okay, well, <laughs> but it is it's a very good metaphor. Like you have two people that uh, many assume uh, would not be crossing paths very often, but Starbucks you bring them together in the same way that uh, Pauline theology has a lot of people with different ideas. And uh, you, you compare trying to sum up Pauline theology 
it used to be like trying to jump on a moving train. Now it's gotten worse, and it's like uh, someone trying to describe a box of fireworks seven seconds after someone dropped a match into it. So yeah, yeah it's a bit like that. It's a lot. But if you were to try to sum up maybe Pauline thought and the way Paul is used maybe in America, how would how would you sum that up? How do you think most Americans are using Paul these days? Well, uh, I'm not sure about most because that would depend on a lot of statistics. And what I mostly see is um, what's going on in the academy. Um, and, in the, and, and what I was describing there was largely the academy. As soon as you come out of the academy and into the wider church and into the wider world, then there's lots more again. And in the churches, um, you have some people for whom Paul is everything, at least their interpretation of Paul is everything, and justification by faith is the center of what they believe and so on. And that's how they read Paul. And that's how they order their churches according to a kind of a traditional Protestant uh, Pauline uh, reading. But then you also have some, not least in the mainstream churches, who are very suspicious of Paul and want to take some bits of him, but are really worried because he uh, keeps saying things about women or homosexual practice or whatever, which they don't agree with. And so they either try to um, dismiss that and say, well, at that point, Paul just had um, a, a fit of hiccups or something, and he, he didn't really mean what he said. Or they say, well, Paul was just a misogynist, or he was mm -hmm. just um, out of touch or something. So there's a lot of debates go on about Paul. The one thing you can't really do is ignore him, because there he is. If you're reading the New Testament, he comprises quite a fair chunk of it, and uh, a pretty lively chunk at that. Um, but then also you have uh, a lot of people within the sort of spiritual direction movement who would go to some key passages in Paul and uh, expect to be able to use them pastorally or as, as the foundation for, for uh, particular ways of praying and so on. So all of that is going on. But what I've tried to chronicle in this book is more um, what, what the, the, the serious world of scholarship has done. And in America particularly, I think it's fascinating because over the last generation or so, there have been three towering figures. There's lots of others as well, but Ed Sanders, who is a um, retired professor in, in Duke and was for a while a colleague of mine in Oxford, um, and then there's Lou Martin, who sadly died fairly recently, who was a professor at Union in New York, and Wayne Meeks, who um, was a professor in Yale. And they're all roughly um, the same sort of vintage. That is, they were flourishing in the 70s and 80s and 90s and then all uh, retired uh, around the end of the 90s, or I think in, in Martin's case somewhat earlier. But they all have written major books on Paul, which have made major splashes in the discipline. And the fascinating thing is that they're... they're their different areas of, of looking at Paul aren't talking to each other. You know, Sanders' comparative religion thing of an analysis of Paul in comparison with Palestinian Judaism is very different from Lou Martin's so-called apocalyptic Paul, both of them very different from Wayne Meeks's socio-cultural analysis of the Pauline communities. And yet they're all reading the same texts. They're all kind of modern American biblical scholars, all part of the Society of Biblical Literature, etc. You might think that these uh, discussions would be in dialogue and in contact with each other, but really they haven't been, and that the over-specialization of our discipline is a real problem today. And one of the reasons I wrote this book was for the average graduate student starting out wanting to study Paul without any idea of the map on which all these different people are living in quite separate little enclaves. Yeah, and, and it does a great job of bringing all three of those thoughts together in, in the works of those people. Why, why do you think, you, you said it was the um, specialization, but, but why would you think that people wouldn't try to like bring all these together? Because it seems like this book makes so much sense to put all of them together. 
Uh, why hasn't that been happening before? Well, life is complicated, and uh, if you study with a particular professor and in a particular um, university or faculty or college, um, then there is so much going on in that particular area. I mean, supposing somebody studied with Sanders at Duke or before that in Oxford or before that at McMaster, um, then uh, Sanders would send them to the world of first century Judaism, to the rabbis, to Qumran, and they would have plenty to be going on with there, and lots and lots of commentaries which they would read which would be coming at things from that angle and lots of new questions coming up in that area and then people like me and Jimmy Dunn and Richard Hayes and, and Francis Watson who in a sense have followed on from Ed Sanders and done things differently but we're, we're still um, working from out from under that and Francis Watson particularly I think who's in Durham, Durham England as opposed to Durham, North Carolina mm -hmm. but then likewise if you were working with Lou Martin then his whole take on apocalyptic um, it, which isn't what most people mean by apocalyptic, but it's very popular in America right now, yeah. um, then you would be beavering away looking at uh, Paul's letters from that particular analytic standpoint. And that really doesn't mesh with what Sanders is doing at all. And neither of them are doing what uh, Meeks and the other social historians are doing. So it's just that there's too much to do. And just as it's hard these days to be a Pauline scholar and, say, a Johannine scholar or a Revelation scholar or a historical Jesus scholar even, um, you know, some of us have tried to combine maybe two of those worlds, but that's difficult. But the Pauline field itself has bifurcated, multifurcated now, and it is just physically very, very difficult to keep up. And if you're a graduate student or a professor, you already have far too much to read as it is. So you tend to read around in the area which looks most fruitful for what you're doing. And, and so, as I say, I've, <laughs> I'm old enough now to have hung out with a lot of different stuff and uh, so I'm trying to take a bigger and longer view. Yeah, and, and I appreciate you doing that and trying to bring it all together. One of the things that you encourage people to do is to give up the idea that they are the first ones to read the text, but simply the latest in a long line of readers. What, yeah, what, do you, yeah. what do you think causes that, that kind of well, naive assumption? I mean, I, I, in, in some ways, yes, I do encourage people to realize where they stand in a tradition of interpretation. At the same time, there is no substitute for first-hand engagement with the text. And, and I think we all have to go around a kind of a long loop on this, that we probably all begin by either hearing sermons or lectures or something, and something makes us think, wow, that text's interesting. I wonder if that means this or that. And so we, we go back and we read it for ourselves. And then because it's probably puzzling, we maybe try and get hold of a commentary. And then we're into the whole business of the commentary uh, genre. And the danger then is that we forget the original text and, and we simply concentrate on the tradition. And so I want to say we need both, and different people need both at different stages of their work. And I would always say to any student, um, please take some good time, sit down with just the Greek text of Paul and a large sheet of paper and work through and see what questions you're coming up with. Some of those will be questions which all the commentators discuss. It's possible that some of them won't be, and you will be asking your own original questions. But when you ask those questions, you will then want to go and check back to the great commentators from the very early days right the way through, because even if you're looking at it from a different angle, you ought to be in conversation with these previous readers. So it's a, the first-hand knowledge is vital, but also the tradition is, is pretty vital too.
Yeah, that's good. And I like how you're saying both of them matter. It's not either or. Now, as a pastor, what I personally do is whenever I get a text, I just go to your commentary on it, and then I let you tell me what I think about it, and that saves me a whole lot of time. That's not good. You you, you should (laughs) repent of that, my brother. uh, uh, I mean, uh, however useful a commentary is, um, yeah, it'll kickstart some thoughts. But your own, pers- you, I'm not sure you know this, I mean, I'm so sure you're speaking tongue-in-cheek, but, but, but one's own first-hand engagement with the text always has to be a vital element in any fresh reading and, and presentation. Well, how do we keep that intention with, okay, so we have our own questions, our own experience with the text, our first-hand encounter with it, but how do we wrestle with that while also not wanting to fall in the easy temptation of thinking that our questions are the first-century questions that, that Paul or whoever is dealing with? Yeah, well, we, we, we have to go on checking back, and it's not just a matter then of checking about the tradition of Pauline scholarship, but it is a matter of checking back to the wider world of the first century. And this is where Sanders, from his angle, looking at the religions of the first century, especially Judaism, and Meeks, from his angle, looking at the social world of the, of the first century, these are enormously important because there are all sorts of assumptions, things that people took for granted in those days, which we maybe even have never heard of and have to be educated into thinking about, but they were second nature to people then, just like we use today all the language and jargon of uh, electronic communication and social media media and so on, and we're all just very used to that. Um, But actually, go back even 50 years, and if you bring someone forward from that period, they wouldn't have a clue what we're talking about. And things that we can say in a quick sentence, they would require a long paragraph to explain, well, now we do these things, and we have this thing called the internet, etc., etc. So imagine going back then 2,000 years to a world with all sorts of assumptions, cultural, religious, uh, philosophical, uh, economic, I remember once in an essay when I was an undergraduate saying something about, I was writing an essay about the Roman army and talking about levels of pay, and I was just assuming that inflation, which was what I knew from my own 1960s British world, was a kind of universal constant, and my tutor stopped me and said, uh, no, actually, you're a modern person who assumes inflation, but in fact, in the Roman world, a steady deflation was going on. Um, And so things that we take for granted, which simply aren't true, and things that they took for granted, which we don't see unless we read Josephus or Cicero or Seneca or Philo or somebody to to help us bed ourselves into Paul's world. After all, Paul's letters are a very, very short piece of literature. They form a vital heart of the New Testament, but there's not many pages there compared with, say, Plato or Cicero or somebody. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so speaking of Sanders, because he helps us see past some of our assumptions about what we think is going on with uh, first century uh, Second yep. Temple Judaism and move past maybe some 16th century questions that, that we often bring to the text. And his book that you, you mentioned a lot yep. in, in this new book, uh, Paul and His Recent Interpreters, you talk about Sanders' book from 1977, Paul and Palestinian Judaism, yep. and you call that one of the great milestones in 20th century. You say it's like... If there's a bunch of people on a field playing a, a, some sort of sport, um, this book is like a volcano eruption that happens on the playing field. It changes everything. Yeah, and, yeah I remember it vividly. I mean, I was uh, working on my doctorate 
when that book came out. And one of my colleagues in Oxford, um, who was one of the young lecturers there, he, he heard about it. I think he may have had an advanced copy or something. And he said, um, by the way, there's a book coming out in a month or two that I think you're going to enjoy because he knew what I was working on. And, uh, and sure enough, um, it, it was fascinating. I still think Sanders was wrong in certain very clear ways, and I did when I first read it. But the question he raised namely have we mostly been reading paul through 16th century eyes rather than first century eyes that remains one of the vital questions of our day so when you read that while you're working on your phd did it change your research did it change what you were writing um it 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 gave more focus i had been bashing my head against Lutheran interpretations and reformed interpretations, particularly on the subject of Paul and the law, and I had come to my own conclusion that Galatians had a more negative view and Romans had a more positive view of Paul and the law, but it wasn't quite clear to me how that all worked out. And I had just come to the point, I think it was 1976, when I had written a piece on Romans 10.3, I think it was, 10, well, that whole bit, 10, 1 to 4, where Paul says that that they, his Jewish contemporaries, are ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own. They did not submit to God's righteousness. And I began to think their own righteousness. This is a status of righteousness, which is not a moralistic self-help thing. This is a righteousness for Jews and Jews only. And the whole passage is about Jews and Gentiles. And there were other people pre-Sanders writing about that. I think in this book, I instance George Howard as one, a sort of early sign of the same thing. But what Sanders did was go back massively through the Jewish world that uh, Paul knew. I mean, there's a question about how relevant the rabbis are, but that's a, that's in a, second, a sense a secondary question. And he said, look, we have all operated with a caricature of Judaism. Here is... Uh, the major Jewish world of Paul's day, it doesn't look like a bunch of Pelagian self-help moralists trying to make themselves good enough for God, and we should all stop thinking it did. And then, of course, you have the question, so did Paul get it wrong? And then Sanders says, no, no, Paul didn't get it wrong, and this is how Paul works in consequence. Now, even though you can pull holes in some bits of Sanders' construct of Judaism, and even though many, including myself, would say that he is both right and wrong in what he says about Paul, um, raising the question in that way was absolutely vital. And, uh, I, I mean, this is still very controversial in some circles, but I do notice, and I think I quoted in the book, that actually Karl Barth had said something remarkably similar in the 1950s, where he had said uh, that Luther and Calvin had brought their own questions to Paul and that, uh, in fact, um, that they, they would have done better to, to think about uh, what Paul's own questions were rather than, than theirs. Yeah, it's the, the chapter on the new perspective. I have a long quote from, from Karl Barth, Church Dogmatics 4, saying more or less that. And I hope that is a shot across the bows of any potential critics of mine who will say that this is simply an anti-Reformation polemic because Karl Barth is not... Uh, anti-Reformation polemic. He he stands in the great line of Reformation theology, but he could see quite clearly, 20 years before Sanders' book, that Luther, in reading Galatians, was reading his own situation back into Paul's, and that this distorted Paul's situation. That's the critical point. 
One of the other shots that seems to come the direction of the uh, quote-unquote new perspective, which uh, if anyone's read the book, they know that uh, that's a very loose collection. It's kind of hard to get everyone on board. But one of the other shots across the bow is that this group of people, I I include myself in that, doesn't seem to care about the atoning death of Jesus. Um, Well, that's that's just silly. I mean, if you read the works of Jimmy Dunn, if you read my works, if you read Richard Hayes, um, plenty of other people, um, the atoning death of Jesus remains absolutely central. And indeed, in my own big book, Paul and the Faithfulness of God, I was quite careful in the section on Paul's theology, that's part three of that book, that the very center of that section, which is the center of chapter 10 of that book, is a long exposition of the meaning of Jesus' death in Paul. And I did that quite deliberately in terms of the structure um, that, that I wanted to make it absolutely clear that the cross stands right at the middle. Now, of course, if you say, what is the pattern of religion? How does the religion work? And Sanders lined up the pattern of religion in terms of getting in and staying in. Then it's possible to talk about conversion and to talk about church discipline, getting in and staying in or not, um, without having too much to do with the question of the cross. Sanders does mention, of course, he mentions the cross because he talks about justification and so on. But the way that he was lining up the question he wanted to research, which was a comparison of patterns of religion, doesn't foreground the cross in the way that a full study of Paul's theology would. That's one of the problems with Sanders' book, that the section on Paul is in theory about Paul's pattern of religion, and that's how he structured it. But he keeps on saying, actually, Paul's religion is mostly theology. And so he comes back to theology, but he hasn't actually structured it on any really coherent theological basis. So, um, yes, it is possible to do some kind of post-new perspective work um, marginalizing the cross, but that's certainly never been, <laughs> never been my intention or, or practice. And indeed, um, I've probably written more about the cross in the New Testament than, than most other New Testament scholars. Oh, yeah, you've, you've definitely spent a lot of time working on that and helping a lot of us uh, have a new uh, and a an, uh, deeper understanding of what the cross is. So I think that definitely be a, a false characterization. Um, when you talk, though, about the, you know, the hope of Judaism, it's not the 16th century hope of, okay, we're going to go to heaven when we die, we're going to be forgiven of sins, uh, but it's a hope for a Messiah. And then the kingdom becomes the goal, not heaven. And so, yes, exactly. Um, th- th- that, that's right. And now, it, it, people push back at me on this frequently and say that I'm caricaturing the reformers. But each time I go back and I look at either Luther or Calvin or Zwingli, or indeed people writing about Luther and Calvin and Zwingli, when I inquire um, what is the ultimate hope, it all comes back to heaven again and again and again. Now, of course, um, they weren't necessarily otherworldly escapists. Calvin believed in reforming the city of Geneva and would like other places to reform like that as well, and that's a classic Calvinist thing. Um, Other great reformers, like in my own country, Martin Busser, um, were articulating a vision of a social reform as well as a theological reform, but the end of the day is that ultimately we're all supposed to go to heaven. And this is where I regularly say um, that's the medieval vision, the Western medieval vision, the Eastern Church to this day, they have other problems, but not this one. The Eastern Church believes in new creation, not surprisingly, because that's in the Bible. But I think <laughs> in the Western medieval period, um, that was kind of lost sight of. 
And even resurrection was lost sight of, because if you're simply going to go to heaven, and people talk about it to this day in terms of a soul going to heaven, um, which most people understand in a disembodied fashion, then why do you need resurrection? Indeed, what would resurrection mean if really what happens is a disembodied soul in a timeless eternity? And so what I've tried to do, uh, and interestingly, Barth again says that the reformers never really sorted out their eschatology. And of course they didn't, because they were answering the medieval questions. And let me be quite clear. I think the reformers were trying to address the late medieval questions with biblical answers. Now, that's a wonderful thing to do. Here are the questions of our day. What does the Bible say? But sooner or later, we have to say, yes, but maybe the Bible wasn't written to answer those questions. Mm -hmm. And maybe we have to check back and make sure we're looking at the real thing. So, yeah, kingdom of God, new creation, that is the goal. And one of the things that the new perspective has actually opened up, not that Sanders said this and not that Dunn said it either, actually, um, is the possibility of a Jewish vision of uh, the renewal of all creation, which is clearly there in the New Testament. Romans 8, 1 Corinthians 15, Revelation 21 and 22. And for me, that's just as important as any of the fine-tuning about the new perspective and works of the law and so on. So, so why do you think people miss miss that when obviously it's a big deal to you you've written on that uh you have books about that but when you don't make that the center of it but you make it a i think one metaphor used in the book was like a secondary crater but it's not the main crater uh, well, all, all of a sudden people think it's not as like that you don't care about it yeah well, this is that i didn't care about like like heaven for example like oh, going, see. well yes i mean uh, i said to somebody just today it's very odd you can look right through the new testament and you won't see anybody talking about going to heaven when you die. And yet that is one of the main themes of preaching, of hymnody, and all the rest of it in Western Christianity, especially in America, I have to say. Yeah. Um, and, and people look at me strangely, and I say, well, show me where in the New Testament talks about going to heaven when you die. So they say, well, Jesus says to the brigand who's dying beside him, today you'll be with me in paradise. And I say, yeah, absolutely, um, that's fine. Paradise can mean heaven or something like that, but that's not the end of the story, is it? Because three days later, Jesus is back, he's raised from the dead, and Luke is quite clear that this is the real thing, and that if there is a heaven in between life and resurrection, fine, but that's not the focus. The focus is on the ultimate goal. Likewise, in John, Jesus says, in my father's house are many rooms, many mansions. And yeah, fine, but John 2 makes it quite clear that we're talking about the resurrection, the ultimate resurrection, not simply somewhere that people go after death. Paul in Philippians 1 talks about departing and being with Christ, which is far better. But then he later in Philippians talks much more enthusiastically about the resurrection, when our bodies will be changed to be like Jesus' body. So, and, and those are really the three major places in the New Testament. Part of the difficulty is that ever since the Middle Ages, the Western Church has read Matthew's language about the kingdom of heaven as though it is talking about a kingdom, a future place, called heaven, where we go and we die. But in Matthew's Gospel, at the heart of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus teaches us to pray, Thy kingdom come on earth as in heaven. Mm -hmm. And at the end of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Um, and so, 
actually, the New Testament is very clear that God's purpose is for the whole world and its renewal. And after you die, if you belong to Christ, you go to be with him, but then later to be raised from the dead when God renews all things. The problem has been that it's been so ingrained in us ever since the Middle Ages, and it's now in all our hymns and prayers and liturgies and pastoral counseling and sermons, but it's very, very difficult. People can hear about resurrection and so on, but they flick back into default mode unless they really concentrate on thinking it all through. Yeah, so as you just said, it's in our in the songs that we sing, in the prayers that we say, yep, yep, in, yep. in the sermons that we hear. Do you think the push for you know more of an escapist heaven comes more from the church than the academy? Because the church is pushing oh, that more? Um, well, essentially, yes, probably. Um, because actually this is, I mean, we've got slightly off topic because this is not a major topic in this book, Paul mm-hmm. has recently interpreted. It is obviously hugely important. Yeah. But um, uh, it, I would be hard put to it to, 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 to try to show you where... Um, uh, either Sanders or Martin or Meeks um, has a major discussion on this because basically they don't. Um, they talk a bit about eschatology, a bit about um, you know, God's, God's plans for, for, for the future or Paul's vision of God's plans for the future. It's not a major theme for them. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think it is more a church conversation. I would like to inject it back into the academy. I've tried to do that with my mm-hmm. big book on the resurrection because it actually makes a difference to how you do Paul's whole theology according to what you think Paul saw as the vision of salvation. So Martin and Sanders and Meeks all tend to assume that salvation means roughly what the church has said it means. And so this is a point where I would challenge all three of them and those who follow them um, actually to start with the Pauline end and work back and see what happens. Yeah. One of the themes that obviously is a big part of the book is the apocalyptic reading of of Paul. And so... uh, before we jump into that one, maybe you could just give uh, the elevator pitch, the 30-second take on the you know, triumph of God, the cosmic dimension over the individual that the apocalyptic kind of helps us see. Yes, okay. I mean, the first thing to say is this blessed word apocalyptic has at least six meanings in current scholarship, several of which are completely incompatible with one another, and that most scholars outside America would not recognize the way that the word is used by uh, J.L. Martin and uh, his followers as being a valid description of any phenomenon in the first century. Having said that, what Martin and others have done, picking up ideas from Kazeman particularly, is to say with Paul all in Colossians 2 or 1 Corinthians 2 and various other passages, that when Jesus died and was raised, then something happened. A shockwave went through the cosmos. The principalities and powers that have held the world captive were uh, delivered a death blow, and that, uh, that this is the heart of the gospel. Actually, the best expositor of this from a generation ago was uh, J. Christian Becker, who taught at Princeton for a long time. And I, I actually think Becker got it better than either Kazeman or Martin, even though Becker's book is, is quite confused in some ways. He really saw this and nailed it, I think. So um, when you read Paul straight through, there are many, many passages in which he isn't just talking about how the gospel enables you or me to have a right relationship with God, um, but it's actually talking about God regaining control over a cosmos which uh, has been under the rule of the principalities and powers. Now, how you put those two together, Christ died for our sins on the one hand and rescuing us from the evil age on the other, that's Galatians 1, 4, A and B. Um, how you say those two things together and enable them to 
to be mutually informative and supportive is a really tricky issue, but it's a tricky issue not just for Pauline exegesis, but for all systematic theology. And I and many others scratch our heads about that and come up with theories and, and how we think it's actually working. But it's really important to have both those things. Part of the difficulty of the current apocalyptic schools, so-called, is that they tend then to focus on the cosmic, sometimes to the diminishment or disappearance of the personal justification by faith, as in the work of Douglas Campbell, for instance. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the, the metaphors you use for the apocalyptic uh, language is that it, in some ways it's like a, the balloon that was tied to the big store during a sale, and it was showing everyone, hey, it's right here, and then all of a sudden the cord gets broken, so you have this balloon that's <laughs> floating away. And so yeah, yeah, like, it, yeah. it, it's hard to say, but there, there obviously is a tie in Scripture to you know, Daniel, Ezekiel, Revelation, where yep. there is apocalyptic, and that, so that's the heart of it. And like you're saying about Becker— in in the book, you you say that he's in some ways critiquing the individualism of Boltman. Yeah, yeah. So was... Well, because Kaiserman was doing that already in the 1950s, and that's really. I mean, it's very interesting the contextualization of this in Germany in the middle years of the 20th century. Um, Boltman faced with the rise of uh, well, first the Weimar Republic, and then the rise of Nazism and the great financial difficulties of, of Germany at the end of the 20s and 30s, and so on. Um, Boltman was exploring Gnosticism as a way of trying to turn Paul's theology into a statement about about anthropology, that is, about who are we, man before faith, man under faith, those are Bultmann's categories. And uh, you can see that faced with absolute chaos on the social and political front, this was a way of kind of hanging on to a personal meaning in the middle of it all. But then after the war, Kaiserman, who had been imprisoned by the Nazis, just said this is hopelessly inadequate. The gospel, in fact, does address the much bigger issues of the great powers that seem to stand behind all our political powers and that actually destroy communities and human lives on a large scale and that we have to recapture that dimension. And Becker picked that up and in a sense Martin and co have picked that up but they haven't followed it through politically in the way that, uh, that Kaiserman certainly did and that, uh, that many others, myself included, have tried to. Yeah. Okay, well, let's talk about the, uh, the social historical uh, approach. So that's more like the third part of the book. And uh, so there's a, the grad student who you're writing this for. Um, they're trying to piece through all this stuff. Uh, and they're going to hear you say that you're going to take the social historical approach instead of the social anthropomorphic, anthropological excuse me, uh, approach. Uh, the first-year grad student who doesn't really know what that means, what, do they, uh, what should they understand by that or hopefully get? Well, um, uh, okay, these technical terms can be a bit slippery and they move to and fro depending on who's using them. But uh, when we're talking about social history, we're really talking about trying to give what we call a thick description as much as possible of what's actually going on. What do people actually do on a day-by-day basis? How do they eat? What do they wear? What sort of homes do they live in? What are their assumptions about the comparative roles of men and women? How does their society work? Is it hierarchical or is it more flat or whatever? More and more and more and more. Because as you do that, as you pile up this description, you get a much better sense of how different that world was from, say, our world today. And certainly the world around the ancient Mediterranean, the world in which Paul went around preaching the gospel to places like Athens or Corinth or Thessalonica or Ephesus, was 
radically, radically different to the world of Edinburgh or New York or Dallas or wherever today. Um, and so it, we have to be joggled out of our assumptions. And often it's only the piling up of that thick description that will do that. But then as we do that, certain themes emerge about, about assumptions that they, they are much more what, what we often call an honor-shame society, much more overt about the constant quest for honor, for social prestige, and, and the things that get you that or lose you that. And, of course, we do the same um, in our world, but it, it sometimes feels a bit different. Or, or think about you know, the, the way they use money or their assumptions about slavery and all those sorts of things. So the social historian wants as much of that detail as possible. Then, of course, you can go the other route and say, because we know about anthropology, we know how um, human societies function, how people function, we can set up models which then enable us to deduce what, quote, must have, unquote, been going on, even though nobody talks about it. And that, uh, I'm with Wayne Meeks on this one, we have to be very careful about setting up abstract models and then saying that's what must have happened. We are on safe ground only when we go into the actual history. Excuse me, my doorbell has just rung, and this may mean that we have to break off. Uh, just hang on half a second. That's all right. All right, friends. Uh, we had a little bit of a hang-up there. Uh, there actually was a delivery to the Good Rights House. So um, was it a wardrobe that just came in? It was a wardrobe, actually, yes, surprisingly. <laughs> now, I don't know if you know this, but sometimes wardrobes over on your side of the pond can have mysterious portals to other lands in the back yeah of well that would be nice um this had not yet occurred to me having just seen it assembled but uh, maybe once it's bedded down a bit it will require some properties i'll, I'll let you know if it does. <laughs> outstanding outstanding okay so let's uh the book paul and his recent interpreters one of the things i feel like you're trying to accomplish is you're trying to move the entire conversation forward yeah. is that a fair take on what you're trying to accomplish Oh, absolutely. I think there's a danger of scholars and graduate students particularly getting stuck in one particular mode and thinking this is the only conversation to be had. And actually, a lot of people, when they start reading Paul, they may find that the texts don't quite fit into the question and answer system that they had thought. And actually showing them that there are quite other systems out there, um, and they may not be adequate either, but at least they're different, should help people actually get out of being stuck in one place and, as you say, move forward. And so we've got the, the different voices. We've got Sanders, the new perspective people, the apocalyptic, the, uh, the social historical approach, all that stuff. Um, are all those ultimately different voices that are trying to get us to the first century tone of what Paul is originally doing? Well, um, yes and no. The, the middle one, apocalyptic, is ironic because you'd have thought, calling it apocalyptic, that they would be trying to get back to the first century. And, of course, they claim that this is, they, you know, they say this is what Paul was really on about. But actually, they don't do nearly as much of the detailed study of the wider first century world as either Sanders and, and his followers or Meeks and his followers. I should say, I'm just using this as shorthand because yeah. there's not just three names. Those are three that sort of emerge like mountains out of the mist, but there are lots and lots of others as well. And, and they don't all fall into the same pattern. This is, this is why the map work is so difficult. Yeah, obviously, and, and that's part of the complexity of, you know, what you're trying to do is there's so many different voices. And even yeah. to say, you know, the new perspective, you know, you, Dunn, uh, Sanders, you, you all don't even see eye to eye on that. Is it, so oh, no. 
No, that's quite true. And indeed, I, mean, I remember vividly when I first read Sanders and then read his next book that came out, Paul the Law and the Jewish People, and I actually was in a seminar with Sanders not long after I read it, and he said, have you read my book? And I said, yes. He said, do you have some questions? I said, sure. And so he gave a talk, and I gave the questions. And we spent about an hour and a half going at it, ding-dong, and, and he didn't actually like some of the questions I was asking. <laughs> but it, it, So right from the beginning, I have never been a Sanders groupie, far from it. However, um, I'm grateful to him for raising the questions in a new way, because he'd done, I mean, the great thing was he'd done so much work on the rabbis particularly, that he understood in a way that few scholars from the non-Jewish world did at that stage, just how a rabbinic mind works. And even if we say that actually Paul wasn't a rabbi, because the rabbis are a bit later, nevertheless, this was enough to shake the discipline out of the easygoing assumptions that Judaism was what Luther had said it was. Yeah. Do you think, as we described earlier, you have maybe the Sanders school, you have the Meek school, you have Martin, and these people who have been huge influences for so many academics, so many students, so many uh, pastors, in their way that they understand text and understand Paul, um, the the tendency to just find one person, and then because of the milieu of different options that you just focus on one voice and you don't hear the rest. Um, do you think that kind of uh, hamstrings our ability to get the complexity of all the different voices and how they all can kind of work towards us having a better understanding? Yeah, sure. And I mean, not all the voices are of equal strength or, or weight. I mean, uh, we have to, part, part of the trick of reading scholarship is to evaluate that you assume in advance that nobody is perfect, but nobody is utterly stupid either, um, and, and that therefore they probably all have a point to make, and discerning what that point is is the crucial thing, and then weighing the evidence. But the crucial thing always, Luke, is to be driven back to the text, that whoever you read, it ought to make you think, my goodness, I need to sit down and read Galatians 4 again and see if, that, see if that's so. Um, and that, that's what I would say to anyone coming to this, um, study these scholars and use my book as a way in, but then this should lead you back to the text, not away from it. And, uh, of course, there are, likewise, as I say in the book, there are many, many other traditions of scholarship, including many that are thriving right now on the continent of Europe, for instance, some of the great German scholars who I'm not discussing in this book. That will be a whole other project. Mm-hmm. Um, so so uh, we need all the help we can get. The, the thing about Paul is he's short, he's dense, he's packed, he's exciting, but um, anyone writing so briefly on such complex subjects in a different culture from our own needs all the, uh, the, the, the angles of vision that we can supply, and that's, that's really what this is all about. Yeah, and, you, and your book does a great job of putting so many of the different options, and obviously you can't get all of them, but you have so many of them out there, and it helps to see that. Now, speak, speaking of other voices, um, say hypothetically, in a few months, you're going to be at a conference, and there is a scholar that you've pretty much quoted in just about every sermon you've ever done, and hypothetically, you had to follow and do a keynote right after him. <laughs> hypothetically, how would you go about doing that without just ripping off his material when he's gone right before you? Well, um, <laughs> when I've been in situations vaguely like that, I've not been in quite that situation, but vaguely like it, I would start with the text. I would, okay. I would find a Pauline text that would be uh, tricky and quizzical and raising questions. And I might say, well, um, we could read the text like thus and so, and maybe alluding to what the guy before had said. Um, 
And then I would say, but it seems to me we would leave some problems lying around if we did that. So supposing we approach it like this, I'm just guessing. Um, <laughs> but but, but that, that's a perfectly ironic way of getting at it. And, of course, within the scholarly world, everybody would see at once what was, what was going on, what was happening. Mm-hmm. Now, it varies because some people have, have torn into me and ripped shreds off me. And then depending on who it is and how well you know them, sometimes they actually want you to get back at them in the same way and to have a really good tennis match. And there are some people who I'd be really happy to do that with. But you have to be a bit careful because, um, depending on who it is, some people get very twitchy if you, if you take them on. Good. So I would tend to say stick to, uh, stick to the text. After all, the text is what we're all about. Um, and, and so if there's a passage which is, uh, take Romans 4, you know, Romans 4 is a difficult passage because lots of people think they know what it's about, and then halfway through verses 16 and 17, um, they have to put it in brackets or something. That, to me, is a sign that they've actually taken a wrong turning earlier on. So the answer would be, let's go back, take a read from the top, try it this way around, and see if that bit of the text then really comes out smoothly this time. So there's, there's things like that where, where you can then kind of shrug your shoulders and say, well, QED, um, you might be right, but in that case, Paul has sort of contradicted himself or made a bit of a mess in the middle. Wouldn't it be easier if we found a way of reading the text where it looked as though he'd said exactly what he meant? And that, that's, all, that's always my aim as an exegete, hmm. is to get to the point where we can see why he said exactly what he said. That seems like a very you know, straightforward idea, like you want the, <laughs> to read it so that it makes sense for what Paul's saying. That's good. Now, as, uh, uh, as you might know, uh, in May that both of us are going to be at a conference at Pepperdine Hi. University in Southern California, and you go the very first night, you're the first keynote, and the next day I do the, the follow-up one. So I'm going to take your advice, <laughs> and I'm just going to stick to the text that I've been given. Uh, yeah, well, and it'll be interesting to see whether we overlap or converge or, um, or have some gentle controversy or whatever. Who knows? I don't know. I haven't written my talk yet, and I bet you haven't either, so no. we'll see. <laughs> no, I haven't. And if anyone listening to this actually has to think, hmm, who should I take if Luke and Dr. Wright disagree? That's on them, because they should obviously take your opinion. Because well, the answer is you take Paul. <laughs> yeah, you take Paul. Well, Dr. Wright, thank you so much for the time. Uh, Luke, Paul, thank and- you, and thanks for your patience with all the to and fro, both about the, the, the day and then about, about this afternoon. It's been a crazy last couple of hours, but, but you, you've rolled with the punches, so well done. Well, and, uh, and thanks very much for putting it out there. Thank you so much, I appreciate it. Okay, all the very best. Bye-bye. Yes, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned.